0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. As information about the COVID-19 pandemic changes daily, please note that some of the advice contained in this episode may no longer be current by the time you listen to it. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. This information is current as Tuesday the 17th of March. We hope it will remain current, but as you all know, this is a very fast-moving topic, so please uh, fact-check anything you're not 100% sure of. Tonight's guest is Dr. Paul Effler, who would be familiar to our regular listeners, guru of all things infectious diseases and public health, and Paul's been our regular guest on these COVID clinics and webinars. So, Paul, I might just leap straight into it. There's been a lot of talk about countries that have flattened the curve. What can Australia learn from these countries and and how are we doing compared to them?
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. I think the approach that you use initially, and I think Australia's done this uh, fairly well, is to identify new cases as they occur, usually imported, obviously, and then to uh, isolate them and quarantine those close contacts around them. And I think that's what we uh, have seen occur in, in South Korea, particularly, which had a large outbreak and seems to have it under control, as they do a really good job at case finding and then isolation and quarantine of contacts. So that's one thing to learn. The other is it, it would appear from China's experience that um, You know, uh, basically segregating off cities or other things and stopping travel uh, is effective at uh, reducing transmission. And, uh, you know, I think that it was appropriate, uh, the Australian government's decision to prevent travel from hot point areas around the world. And then ultimately now, as we see more transmission globally, to ask everyone that arrives from overseas to uh, go into quarantine for uh, 14 days.
0: And one of the differences, I guess, uh, that South Korea had is they were, and China, they were a few weeks ahead of of where Australia is now, and reagent wasn't so much of an issue. How much do you think the ability to test is going to affect Australia's response to the pandemic? Uh,
1: Looking at South Korea for a moment, you know, they tested widely, and that has been a strength of their response. And one of the interesting things that come out of that is, uh, they're saying that potentially a majority sixty percent of all the infections they identified were asymptomatic. They also have a very low death rate compared to uh, some other uh, settings you know running at about zero point seven percent and that's probably because they're identifying a lot more mildly symptomatic and asymptomatic cases that were occurring in the in the younger age group. so I think that's important to bear in mind that that may be the situation in other settings turning to Australia we've been lucky to do a lot of testing uh, up till now i mean here in western australia we've had about 6500 negative tests for 30 something positive cases so certainly we've had a very sensitive surveillance net going on but the worldwide shortage of reagents has impacted you know at least temporarily our ability to continue that and so we've had to focus down more on individuals we think are, are higher risk. Whether, you know, I'm hearing information that the supply chains may be freeing up uh, and that we might get, be able to return to a situation where we're doing more uh, widespread testing. But it's, it's not clear at this time whether that'll be
0: the case. So one of the hot topics at the moment is school closures. A lot of people are calling for it. Some governments overseas decided to go ahead and close schools early. Can you tell us what is the evidence for closing schools and what effect does that have on flattening the curve?
1: The evidence in school closures is essentially based on influenza. And influenza is a bit different because we know it affects children and we know they're the major causes of transmission of influenza. And that's not clear at this time with COVID-19. What we do know is it doesn't seem to clinically uh, affect children very much. And what role they play in transmission is uncertain. So instead, what we've seen in, in Australia, and I think appropriately so, is this focus on Trying to uh, have folks that arrive overseas, you know, self-quarantine for 14 days, but also to suspend large gatherings, because as was seen in South Korea, you could have widespread transmissions in certain situations, and to try and really prevent these explosive uh, episodes from occurring in the country. So at this point in time, with the limited amount of transmission, with what what little we know about the role of children in transmission of COVID-19, it seems appropriate. All
0: right. I guess time will
1: tell, won't it? You know, you don't want to wait too long, obviously, but I know this is being considered and looked at every single day. The thing about these containment measures, while they're important and uh, appropriate, you also need to consider the potential downsides and and negative uh, consequences of them. And one of the things about closing schools is you take more people out of the workforce, including the healthcare workforce. So it I'm not saying it shouldn't be done at some point. It may, it may be required, uh, but it's not a decision you make lightly.
0: Yeah, for sure. So Italy sits in contrast to other countries with uh, much higher case death rates. Do you have any thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I think two things. Uh, one is Italy was slow to the testing and containment approach uh, that other countries use. At, le- at least that's my understanding. They were doing very limited testing. Uh and not not such aggressive uh, case finding and uh, isolation, so that probably contributed to the amount of transmission. The other one though is that it's my understanding Italy has the second oldest population uh, country population in the world next to Japan, and so some of these what we're seeing is a lot of In Italy, there's a lot of testing of people with severe illness and likely to go on to poor outcomes, and that may be contributing to why it it looks so bad in Italy as far as the proportion of cases that are dying there. Uh, compared to uh, other situations like we just mentioned, South Korea. And even China, outside Wuhan, the reported death rate is 0.9%. Again, that's that's too high, but it's not dissimilar to what we see in some particularly heavy influenza seasons, at least here in Western Australia.
0: Yeah, it'd be really interesting to go back and analyze this pandemic once uh, once it's all done and dusted.
1: Yeah, I think what we really need is a is a good serologic test that can identify um who was infected. So we actually know you know, about these asymptomatic cases to get a better understanding of the lethality. Obviously, it's a it's a very serious illness in, in older individuals and people with serious underlying medical illnesses, but the extent to which, uh, you know, it might be quite mild in, in other age groups and other situations is is unknown because we don't have a, a good serologic test widely available.
0: So assuming that trends continue and many of us become infected, if a person becomes infected and recovers, what are the implications for re-entering the workforce, in particular GPs? You know, how long should we be having off? How long are we, uh, are we fit to restart work? Are we able to go into infected areas and not worry about catching it again?
1: Well, currently we have guidelines that recommend testing people before they are released from isolation after recovery. Uh, I think we're likely to see that change and even very quickly to essentially say if you've clinically recovered, uh, you can go back to your normal activities. And that's because we we believe that most of the transmission occurs early in the course of illness with COVID-19, and perhaps some even before you become symptomatic. Unlike uh, the original SARS, which people tend to be infectious later in the course of their illness, this one seems to be skewed towards earlier on. So hopefully we can get to a point where once you're clinically recovered and you're practicing good hygiene, obviously, um, you could you could go back to uh, the workforce.
0: And what about uh, then, you know, there's talk about two strains. If you Swabbed positive, uh, recovered, we're back in the workforce. Are you still susceptible to catching other strains?
1: There's a lot we don't know about this uh, this new coronavirus. But if you go on first principles and you look at other coronaviruses that circulate widely and cause, you know, basically running noses and other things, it's believed you get immunity for a couple years after one of those infections. So, based on first principles, you'd have to think. Uh, that it's likely that you're going to become immune, and particularly with a, a virus that may cause a lot of mild infections, that that immunity may be enough to keep you from being unwell, even with if there was a slightly different strain circulating. What limited data I've seen presented by the World Health Organization does not suggest that people are getting reinfected within a short period of time. So I would I'd feel pretty comfortable personally that if I was, you know, a documented recovered case that probably I was not going to get uh, symptomatic illness if re-exposed uh, in a short period of time.
0: Yeah. Okay. That actually could become very important later in the course of this pandemic.
1: Yeah. Well, I know your caveat that this is information we have at the time,
0: and everyone needs to stay current because we're going to learn a lot. Um, so if we look then how we can prepare our patients, um, one of the things that's going around is about uh, the groups of people that have uh, higher risk. So Um, for example, existing comorbidities and two that are standing out are hypertension and diabetes. And there's been some suggestion that uh, those groups are on ACE inhibitors and given the ACE receptor effect in COVID causing um, severe acute respiratory syndrome, that perhaps people should be taken off ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Do you know anything about this or or what we should be telling our patients at this early stage?
1: Well, a little little bit. I mean, my first piece of advice would be to not take clinical advice from a public health physician. But having said that, I note that, uh, you know, the idea that these medicines place you at higher risk is based on very limited work so far. And I note that the European Society of Cardiology issued a statement telling people not to discontinue these medicines based on the information that's available now on the theory that it may uh, make you more susceptible to severe illness. So I would, I guess I'd frame it up this way. I've sort of always said you don't want to be the first doctor on your block to used thalidomide in pregnancy, right? It's prudent not to grasp at straws because you appear to be desperate and, and change something. Uh, you know, based on limited uh, evidence, I think. So we know there's benefit to treating hypertension and and uh, using these medicines. We're not sure there's benefit, you know, with preventing severe COVID disease. So I'd say the jury's still out. We should let more information accumulate before we make re- uh, firm recommendations about the approach. And until such time, probably continue with the medicines that we know have benefit. Uh, until we can weigh up the risk-benefit equation and find a different uh, answer.
0: Okay, great. Very sensible and sage advice, as usual. Look, thanks very much, Paul. We're going to keep our podcast short, sharp, to the point, but uh, no doubt we'll be talking again before too long. So thank you very much for your time this evening, and uh, I look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks for the opportunity.